Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 168 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Things might sound a little different today because, alas, we're not together in person. We are not. I am back in Illinois visiting mom. So I'm at the local library with earbuds in and uh, we're doing this via Zoom. Yeah. Modern technology, once again, saves the day. (laughs) You know, I wanted to do a quick update or addition. You remember the audio book episode that we did? Mm -hmm. I just happened to see a note in my little notebook here that we forgot to mention LibriVox. They have a lot of free audiobooks that are in the public domain or books that are in the public domain that are read and available as audiobooks. So that's another great avenue to acquire audiobooks. And that's something you just go to their site? Yeah, LibriVox. It's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I listened to that the other day. I listened to something on my desktop computer. I didn't look to see if they have an app, but they might. Okay, well, if they do, we'll put all of that information in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, we wanted to remind everybody, just do a little housekeeping, that every episode has show notes on our website, bookcougars.com. The show notes include everything that we talk about, literally, the books we talk about, the biblio adventures we go on. There's a section called also mentioned. So if we shout out a writer or some other bookstore that we've been thinking about or talking about, all of that's in the show notes and the links to the books go to our bookshop.org page. Yeah, and we're an affiliate of bookshop.org, which means we get a little percentage back from each purchase at no cost to you. And they also support independent bookstores everywhere. Yeah, we link there. It's really helpful if you purchase books through us. You can purchase books we've mentioned, but you can also, once you're in our shop, search for any book that you're looking for that you want to purchase. And once you're in our shop, if you purchase a book, we get a little percentage, as Chris said. The other thing Bookshop's doing that's really cool is they've started gift cards. My favorite thing in the world is a gift card to a bookshop. (laughs) Absolutely. I have one burning a hole in my pocket as we speak. Yeah. And with the holiday season coming up, you can't go wrong with a bookshop gift card. Yeah. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Even if you buy the gift card, we get a little percentage and you bring great joy to someone in your life. I just bought one for my niece who moved into a new house and, you know, has new bookshelves to fill. Nice. Best gift around, in my opinion, <laughs> especially for those people who read a lot and you're like, I want to buy him a book, but whew, what could I possibly buy him? Right, exactly. It's always a risk. Yeah, but trust me, yeah. they know what they want to buy. <laughs> uh, so speaking of books, Emily, what are you currently reading? I am deep into Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics by Marion Nessel. Thank you to University of California Press for my copy. Marion Nessel is kind of beloved in the food world. She has a background in microbiology. I laughed. There's a chapter where she's talking about being in school and they're using little squid to learn things. And I thought, oh, cannery row, sweet Thursday. (laughs) I know how this happens. People harvest them. Anyway, it's a great book. She has fun pictures in it. And just the story of her life and how she got to be where she is, is 
really interesting because she's renowned in the world of healthy eating and nutrition and politics. I'll talk more about it next episode once I have it finished. Well, I have finally started reading Outlander by Diane Gabaldon. I'm in the first book and these are huge junksters. I have it on my e-reader, which I used to read at nighttime before bed. As I mentioned in a blog post, I'm reading it at a glacial speed (laughs) because these days I feel like I go to bed and I'm zonked out pretty quickly. I'm enjoying it though. It is a big book. The adaptations that were done and that are TV series now were pretty faithful, I think, to that first book. As far as I am, I think I'm at like the 25% mark. Oh, that's a lot for that book. Well, yeah, for that book it is. (laughs) Isn't it like 1200 pages or something? It is big. I don't know if it's 1200. I think it might be like a good 900 at least. I'm not sure. My mom, I had gotten her the latest book. I think it's the 10th one. And she's currently reading it right now. I'm, you know, at her house and it's huge looking. Those are like carpal tunnel books. <laughs> you get, you well, have to read them with a cushion on your lap. And, yes, you know, you do. You cannot- and that's one of the reasons I'm reading it on my e-reader, not only because I'm reading it at nighttime, but also because it is just so huge and yeah. much easier to handle on an e-reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. But I'm enjoying being in 18th century Scotland It's really kind of funny because Claire, the main character who gets transported from the 1940s Scotland to 1740s Scotland, so far at the 25% mark, she's really not missing her husband. (laughs) Back in the 1940s, it's kind of funny, actually. And there's reasons for that. And I think Gabaldon's storytelling may have deepened with time. Because I did read in an interview that she wrote this first Outlander book as just kind of an exercise for herself to learn how to write a novel. She wasn't planning on doing anything with it. And then boom, here it is, this billion dollar industry. Wow, that's amazing. I'm assuming it's a billion dollar industry with adding the TV shows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are happy I'm reading it. And other people are just like, oh, like I used to be like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to start there because it seems to be all consuming. Yeah, I want to, but I've always thought of it as a retirement series. Like when you really have time, you'll just read, read, read (laughs) and dig in. Well, I'm reading On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft by Stephen King. I'm listening to this on audio. This has been in my queue forever. And I don't know, this morning I just, turned it on. I don't know why. And it is so good. And it's not at all what I expected. I mean, the first half is really a memoir of him just talking about how he came to be a writer, dips into his childhood. The gentleman caller reads Stephen King nonstop. I mean, literally, there are Stephen King books all over the house. He's been reading the short stories a lot. And I get it now. He is such a great writer. The part I'm at now, he's actually facing his alcoholism. And the quote I wrote down, he said, alcoholics build defenses like the Dutch build dikes. It's like, (laughs) what a great sentence. Yeah. It's interesting because I've been thinking about his drug abuse and alcoholism and thinking, what was it like to live with him? And how did it affect his art? And so that's actually the part of the book. I'm in right now. So yeah, I mean, it is so good. It's it's one of those books I've read a couple times. And it's not what people expect it to be. It's 
So well done. I was a Stephen King fan before I picked up that book. So when I, he was talking about his life and his early writing and how he struggled, I was so fascinated. Yeah, I mean, really hard scrabble. He and his wife worked really hard jobs to provide for their kids. They got married young, they had their kids right away. And yeah, mm -hmm. that part's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, and he's one of the few writers I've heard say that teaching wasn't a good fit for him. Mm -hmm. When people are writers, a lot of advice they get is, you know, teach, but it's really draining for some people to teach. Mm -hmm. yeah. I appreciated him saying that. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Are you going to be reading some Stephen King novels or stories after this or because of this, do you think? Uh, we'll see. I didn't know I was going to be reading this book. <laughs> until this morning. So yeah, I don't know. I don't feel overly compelled. But I've heard from so many people that this is one of the best books on the craft of writing that they've ever read. So that's yeah. high praise. Absolutely. Now, does he narrate it? He does. And he does oh, a great job. Nice. Cool. He has such a distinctive voice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I might have to listen to it now. I'm knowing that he <laughs> reads it. <laughs> yes, it's very good. I'm also reading A Scatter of Light by Melinda Lowe. Melinda Lowe is the author of Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which was one of Chris's favorite books of 21, I think. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. And we're going to be interviewing Melinda coming up on a future episode. So I wanted to get one of her books under my belt. And this one just came out in October. Yeah, so exciting. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Yeah, and it's a coming yeah. of age novel about a young woman who's living in the Boston area. And she has a little mishap her senior year where there's a video made of her half naked that goes viral. And we're in the year 2013, I believe. And so she's supposed to go to Martha's Vineyard for the summer before college before she goes to MIT. And instead, her parents insist that she go stay with her grandmother who's an artist in San Francisco. And it's right as marriage equality is being celebrated in California. And the young woman's name is Aria, and she starts to come to terms with her own sexuality. Oh. So excited to talk yes. to Melinda. This book has kind of a tricky path to publishing. So we'll look forward to talking to her about that as well. Well, the only other thing I'm reading or getting back into reading, I should say, I brought it with me on this trip is Sweet Thursday by John Steinbeck, which was for the Vintage Book Club that meets here in person in Connecticut. And I was under the weather, so we postponed our meeting for two or three weeks. So we'll be meeting next week to talk about Sweet Thursday. So I have a couple more days to finish. So Emily, what have you read? I finished The Mid Coast by Adam White. This is a debut novel. It takes place in Damariscotta, Maine, which I learned this summer when I was there. There's a section of Maine that's called The Mid Coast, and Damariscotta lies there. I actually don't really know the cutoff, maybe Camden down to Portland. I honestly don't know. But this book surprised me. It's about a young man, Andrew, who I think is semi-autobiographical of Adam, the author who did grow up in Damariscotta. And Andrew has come back to town to teach at the local high school. He's been living in Boston, has started a family, and just decided he wanted to live closer to family. So he moves back home. And when he gets there, the novel starts at a fancy party that's being hosted by a gentleman 
named Ed Thatch, who was someone that Andrew worked for when he was in high school about to leave for college. He came from a lobstering family, but also had the local gas station where the lobster boats filled up their gas and things like that. Now he's come back and the Thatches are really wealthy. The story then takes off from there that their wealth may not have come from being lobstermen. There are some sordid things that happen in this book. It wasn't what I expected. The themes are what does a man do when he's trying to provide for his family and can't? What's the price that he'll pay to do that and the risks that he'll be willing to take? It's also about temptations of wealth and also how if you get involved in sordid things and you think you can control it, sometimes you can't. Yeah. Yeah. You probably never can if it's a sordid situation, right? Yeah. But you think you can, right? Until you Mm -hmm. can't. And so I'm being very cagey because I don't want to give any spoilers, but he's a good writer. I tore through this book in a weekend and really enjoyed it. It's very Maine. So if you enjoy Maine, live in Maine, want to visit Maine, this book is a good way to do it. Again, it's called The Mid Coast by Adam White. Sounds good. So the book I finished is All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake by Taya Miles. Man, this is a brilliant book. I can totally see why it won a National Book Award and other awards. It is the story of Ashley Sack, which was this sack that had embroidery on it. A woman at a flea market in Nashville found this sack in a collection with a bunch of other materials. And when she saw what was written on it, she realized it was something special and purchased it. So hand-stitched on the sack were these words. My great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair told her it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother, Ruth Middleton, 1921. Mm. So those lines were hand stitched on there in three different colors. The woman who purchased it, who's anonymous, she did not wish to be named, did research about it. She found Middleton Place, which is a former plantation home, which is now a historic home. And they ended up purchasing it for a small price. And I think a lifetime membership (laughs) for the woman who found it. And the woman who found it is a white woman. So Milton Place started doing a lot of research on the sack and where it could come from. Around this same time, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American history and culture was starting to do collections research, scouring the country on items that they would like to see if they could borrow for inclusion at this huge museum in DC. And Ashley Sack was one of those items. Scholars have been working on it for some time and trying to find out who these people were. Taya Miles found out about it at a environmental conference. A man came up to her and said, oh, you know, have you heard of Ashley Sack? And she said, no. And he's like, you should check it out. So post-conference, he emails her a link to it. And she looks at it and she's like, wow, this is an amazing thing. And she just got so fascinated by it from a variety of perspectives. And what's so cool about the book 
is that she approaches looking at the sack and trying to find Ashley and Rose and Ruth from so many different disciplines, from slavery studies, women's studies, African-American studies, history, environmental studies, material culture studies. It makes it a fascinating read. So she doesn't, she doesn't find who Ashley and Rose are. She scours a lot of the ledgers that enslavers kept on their enslaved people. And she found some Roses, some Ashleys. And at one place in particular, she found an Ashley and a Rose who may have fit the right dates because they can date when the sack was made and where it was made. And it was probably 1840s, 50s, South Carolina. So she takes this story and the fact that it's not for certain that this is the right Ashley and Rose doesn't even matter in the context of the overall story because she tells such an engaging historical account of the sack and why she chose what she chose to put in it and what those items meant for survival and for the culture, the end. And she talks, as scholars do, about her framework and who influenced her other scholars and things like that. And one of the things she wanted to do was to, to forge a usable past. I should remind listeners, I'm reading this book in part for a class project, and the class is all about archives history and collective memory. So constructing a usable past or what is a usable past is an important question that we've been exploring. And a usable past for whom is a big part of this. So one of the things that Miles does is she's really trying to create a parable of resilience. And this is an idea from another scholar that the historians can intervene responsibly in the memory streams of human communities by writing parables of resilience. And so what Miles does is she not only approaches it from all of these different disciplines, she also uses a lot of voices from a lot of African-American women. So you feel like she is creating this collective memory from all of these different voices that she incorporates. And it's women writers, it's Black characters in fiction, it's other women of African descent writing autobiographical accounts, slave narratives, scholarly pieces. So it's just an amazing collection of voices. The focus is usually on any books about American slavery. It's about the horror and the violence. And there is that in this book, but really the main focus is on love. And it's that love that Rose had for her daughter, Ashley. Taya Miles continually brings that back to love and love for us today and love for our world because as an environmentalist she's very concerned about what we're doing with the world and how we can create better narratives for ourselves to make better decisions than we have been wow. it's a fantastic book it's like she's reclaiming the narrative you know what absolutely totally when you think about a usable past and collective memory something as simple like if you're a white person and you think about american slavery you have a completely different story and perspective as opposed to if you're an African-American person thinking about slavery in America. What good does that traditional American narrative of slavery do 
for African-American people today. And who who does that narrative help, right? Mm -hmm. So she's definitely part of a movement to use primary sources, but also imagination and knowledge that has been gained through generations by putting them together to look at how did these women survive generations of enslavement? Mm -hmm. And maybe their resilience and their know-how and their love is a way for us to imagine the hard work we have to do today to save ourselves. It's such an awesome book. It's not an easy read because you need to give it your attention. Mm -hmm. I read the paperback and then I also listened to the audio version when I was driving around in my car, I was listening to it. And then the last couple of chapters, I did that thing where you listened and read at the same time, yeah. which is very helpful because I had to write a paper about this book. And so while I was listening and I had the book in front of me, I could put sticky notes or check marks next to something that I knew I'd want to go back to and spend more time with. Nice. Yeah, brilliant book. I will read whatever she writes next fascinating. So again, that was all that she carried by Taya Miles. I finished Flight by Lynn Steiger-Strong. This book's release date is the day this podcast airs, November 8th. And this takes place over the course of a Christmas current day with three siblings who have lost the matriarch of the family. And typically they'd be down at the matriarch's home in Florida their mother having Christmas the way Christmas has always happened. And now they're coming together as siblings for the first time without their mom. And for any of us who have lost a parent, there's a renegotiation that takes place with your siblings after your parents are gone. If one of them is gone, if both of them are gone, or if you have more than one set of parents, all of them, you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. There's three different sets of families that come along. They all are married and have partners. Two of them have children. There's two sons and a daughter. And one of the sons and his wife have tried to have children and can't and have come to terms with that. And they're actually the ones hosting everybody up at their house in upstate New York. The book is really a study in that, in your siblings and how you relate to each other, and also getting families together, which I remember from back in the day when we all had kids, I have three siblings, and bring them together, and everyone's parenting differently, and the kids all have different needs, and just that melee that occurs. And then on top of all of it, you're trying to cook a fancy-ass dinner (laughs) to keep everybody happy. So it's about that, and then the wife of the son who cannot have children, was an artist, and she changed careers and became a social worker. And there's a single mother and a daughter that live nearby that she is a caseworker for. They enter into the family dynamic as well, because the young little girl goes missing. And so the mother, who's very young, she's like 23 or something, calls her caseworker to report this, and the family goes looking for the daughter. So she's kind of juxtaposing what the life is like for those two who are struggling, the mother who had lost this little girl for a while to foster care and has gotten her back recently. So Lynn Steiger Strong is a great writer. You're in good hands with her writing for sure. I thought that she dealt really well with the complexities of marriage, these three different marriages for the three siblings, the needs that each of these siblings has. In my mind, she was asking the question that when a parent dies, 
do they have to separate the wealth or the inheritance equally amongst the kids? Or can it be what everybody needs? Can that be looked at? Infertility, she looks at that as well as kids with special needs and how it works when you put your family of origin back together with these added people, the in-laws and the children now about. So it was a good book. I really enjoyed it. She's a very spare writer as well. So again, that's called Flight by Lynn Steigerstrong. Did you have another one? I do. I had a surprise yesterday. I got an email that told me that there was a new short story by Alice Hoffman. And it sadly, it's an Amazon original. So I'm sorry for people who don't use a Kindle or Audible. I have a lot of issues with that, which we talked about on our audiobook episode. I do have a Kindle. So I was able to download the story. I read it really quickly yesterday. It is indeed a true short story. As I've said in previous episodes, Alice Hoffman is one of my favorite writers of all time. This is a story about two sisters, the bookstore sisters. Their family owns a bookstore in Maine, another book in Maine, that's right, on an island in Maine. So you have to ferry over. The dad ran the bookstore. Their mom died of cancer when they were young. And he didn't really run it in a fiscally responsible way. Members of this island community, the year round people there was a very small number and they would just borrow books from the bookstore like it was a library. So he wasn't really selling books and making any money. So the sisters part ways and one stays and runs the bookstore and the other one comes back when the sister hurts herself and needs help at the store and they rekindle their relationship. It's classic Alice Hoffman. There's a lot of plants. This one has a little thread of food, which I really enjoyed. Just out, if you have a Kindle or an Audible account, The Bookstore Sisters by Alice Hoffman. Oh, that's cool. What a nice surprise. Yeah, it was really (laughs) fun. I called on Ellen right away. Like, you have to get this short story because she's also an Alice Hoffman fan. Yeah. And I would say if you've never read her, this would be a good quick introduction to her writing as well. And then you have a million books you can in right. her backlist that you can go find. So yeah, and I've been starting my new year for the last two years reading one of her practical magic books. Right. So I have the third one to read this coming January. Oh, I can't wait. I'll have to check that out. You know, I read a short story too. I'm continuing on with the Willa Cather short story project on my blog. And the story that we are reading for this month is called Eric. Hermanson's Soul. This was published in 1900 in the Cosmopolitan. It was like her first big national magazine acceptance. I won't go into great detail about the story. One of the things about reading these older stories of hers, they weren't put out in a collection while she was alive. You can see the progression of her ideas and working with different characters because like Eric Hermanson, we've seen earlier incarnations of this type of character in previous stories. But one of the things that really struck me in this story, I've looked at scholars and they make these comparisons with characters, but I was struck by a landscape comparison. In My Antonia, which was a novel that came out decades later, there's this famous scene of the sun setting and the sun sets 
like just behind this plow that somebody left off. And I can read the paragraph. Presently, we saw a curious thing. There were no clouds. The sun was going down in a limpid gold-washed sky. Just as the lower edge of the red disc rested on the high fields against the horizon, a great black figure suddenly appeared on the face of the sun. We sprang to our feet, straining our eyes toward it. In a moment, we realized what it was. On some upland farm, a plow had been left standing in the field. The sun was sinking just behind it. Magnified across the distance by the horizontal light, it stood out against the sun, was exactly contained within the circle of the disc. The handles, the tongue, the share, black against the molten red. There it was, heroic in size, a picture riding on the sun. And that image is like so iconic that it is part of the National Willa Cather Center logo. So it's definitely something that is the scene that's commented on a lot in Cather studies and ecological criticism. And then going backwards in time to this Eric Hermanson soul short story, it's about a young man who is torn by religion, basically. Let's say that I call him a zombie-like follower of this particular religious zealot in the area. And after a night when the young man casts these religious restrictions aside and has a night of dancing with the woman he loves, the next morning the preacher comes up and the preacher says, oh, I heard there was a dance. You didn't dance, did you? And Eric is like, I did. I danced a lot. The preacher basically says, this is a quote. He says, you've set your soul back a thousand years from God. I was really pleasantly surprised by the conclusion because this character, Eric, instead of sinking back into despair, and this is a quote, Eric drew himself up to his full height and looked off to where the new day was gilding the corn tassels and flooding the uplands with light. As his nostrils drew in the breath of the dew in the morning, something from the only poetry he had ever read flashed across his mind, and he murmured half to himself with dreamy exultation, and a day shall be as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. So that's the end of the story, and that is a biblical quote. I just thought it was really a fascinating story connecting Cather's themes of how the land can be so healing for people, and how in previous short stories, characters who are desperate, like they find no comfort in the religion that they're following. I just thought some readers who are into nature writing might really appreciate that. And I love the idea or just the phrase gilding of the corn tassels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this morning's walk that I took, we have across from our cove right now, we have these beautiful golden trees and I was walking just as the sun was hitting them and that's a that's a term I would use you can really picture that the way the sun shines on things that's really beautiful yeah Yeah. lovely well and reminder that the Willa Cather short story project is ongoing in the show notes I will link to Chris's blog page which has a Willa Cather tab so join in you can join anytime So we had some serious Biblio adventuring together last week. Oh, yes. Our anniversary of six years of podcasting is coming up. Seven years ago, before we were even the book cougars, 
our first over the state line adventure that we took was to the Mount Edith Wharton's house in Lenox, Mass. Yes, we were new friends. We really didn't know each other all that well, but we thought let's go a little further afield than just doing an author event. It was our first destination biblio adventure and it was great. I, I enjoyed our first visit. And this time we had a little bit more planning. Right, we called ahead and made arrangements to meet with Anne, who's the director of visitor services in Ninke, who is the librarian for the Edith yes. Wharton house. And they took us behind the scenes, we literally got to go, there's a metal gate that you have to open with a key to get into her library. And it's alarmed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so don't push on the gate when yeah. you're there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, they spent two and a half hours with us standing in the library. And then sitting eventually. Yes. <laughs> They got down incredible books and showed them to us. We should tell listeners how this collection came to be at the Mount. Yeah, so Edith Wharton designed and built the Mount according to her design principles. I don't know if listeners know this, but she was very much into design, interior design and houses. Her first book was actually co-written with somebody about design. I know one of the principles of her library that Anne talked about was that the shelves were supposed to be built into the walls so that the books themselves would create a tapestry on the wall. And that's exactly what you see there. We've posted pictures on social media, and we also have a brief video on YouTube that you can see that's a pan of the library itself. But Edith didn't live there for all that long. She eventually moved to France and spent the rest of her life there just prior to World War One, and the house was sold to other people. She did take some of her books, but she had different houses. She had two different houses in France, eventually. She had book plates for the different houses. So, you know, it used to be very popular activity to have a designed book plate with your name on it that you would put on the inside cover of your book. And so when Edith bought a new book, she would put whatever book play was appropriate to go to whichever house, which I've never heard of anyone doing that. I think that's fabulous. I can't say I know a lot of people with multiple houses. That's part of it. <laughs> right. Well, but, exactly. <laughs> right. She had had a house in Newport, Rhode Island before she went to the Mount in Lenox. So she has three book plates. She has one that's Newport, Rhode Island, and then two different ones for her different houses in France. She never had a book plate for the Mount, which is interesting. It is. I wonder, like, I don't know that much about her biography. I really do now want to read her autobiography mm -hmm. and a biography of her as well. I wonder after building this estate, if she'd planned to be there forever, but her marriage crumbled and, you know, she eventually moved away and then had these book plates made. And we will post pictures of the book plates on our social media I think they are available if you go to the Edith Wharton website, you can see them there as well. They're very different. And I know that the one from Newport, their house in Newport was called Land's End. And the book plate has a ship on it. Yeah. So very nautical. <laughs> when she died, she left her book collection to her two godsons. 
we're not clear how she split them up, but they were split up into two different segments, one for each godson. Yeah, so one of those collections was lost in World War II when the bombings happened in London. Right. And then the other collection was in a musty castle. Right. Owned by the Clark family, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then, as people do, they want to rejoin authors' collections. So it was Ramsden, owner of Stone Trow Books in York, England, who rescued Wharton's books. I guess it took him years to get all of the books together and then eventually get them to the mount. And he had studied pictures of the books and pictures of what her original library looked like. And once the deal was negotiated, he came over with the books and went into the library and organized them and put them out the way that he thought they would best be represented by, you know, subject matter. And she also was multilingual. So she had books in German and books in Italian and French. Very impressive. Yeah, and they've maintained that order out of respect for him. They have the books that are on display publicly, and then upstairs they have books in storage. And um, Ninke said that those are books that are possibly damaged a little bit or not that well bound. The binding might be a bit loose, so they really have the books that are in the best shape there in the public library that is gated off so people can't go and handle the books. We didn't handle any of the books. Right. Ninke did, and and she had a book holder that she'd place them on, and we would talk about the books. And we had read ghost stories of Edith Wharton's that took place in New England, and we had posted on our way over social media that we had done that. So when we got there, she was really sticking with that theme and showing us things that were relevant to her ghost stories. Yeah, because Edith Wharton was really into ghost stories and told the story about how Wharton had... She had typhoid. Typhoid, that's it. She was very ill for quite a while as a young person and became terrified of ghosts to the point where if there was a a book with ghost stories in it, she would burn the book. Yes. And that took place until she was 28 years old. (laughs) Yeah. Something changed for her. We don't know what at this point. Hopefully some letter will be discovered eventually. (laughs) But then she changed her attitude about ghosts and eventually started writing ghost stories herself. And I think they were really good, the ones that we read. I enjoyed them very much. Yes, we'll put a link in the show notes to the book that we were reading ghost stories from. There's actually two different ones. Yeah, there's actually a collection of her ghost stories. And then the one that we were reading, it's Wharton's New England, Seven Stories and Ethan Mm From, which is kind of like a novella. And the three short stories we read were The Triumph of Night, Bewitched, and All Souls. So those were really good. But some of the books that they pulled from her collection, one was A Thin Ghost and Others by M.R. James, who was apparently a very popular ghost story writer of the day. They pulled down a book by Lafanu, which made me squeal with delight. (laughs) In a Glass Darkly was the title of that. That was really fun to talk about the ghosts. And then they talked about ghosts in the mount. Yes. Yeah, there have been some things that have happened. Some people have smelled cigar smoke in Mm -hmm. Edith Wharton's husband's study, which was just across the hall from the library. Sometimes women feel someone touch their hair. 
And they said that it would be people who were on a tour that didn't even know each other. And a couple of them would report the same thing. Yes. And sometimes it's happened a couple different times that somebody would go to sit down on a couch or a chair and they would pop up. They're like, oh, I felt like I was sitting on someone. (laughs) They also said the team from that show Ghost Hunters came and the mountain has little cameras mounted in every corner of the room. And they were watching the ghost hunters as they progressed through the building. And there was one room they got in and everyone went crazy because the monitors were going wild. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We were up there at the perfect time to be in a very haunted, haunted house. (laughs) Absolutely. And they were having a reading of Bewitched that night on the patio. Unfortunately, we couldn't stay for that, but they had a professional actor who was going to come and read that as part of their Halloween series. But some of the books that they showed us, like uh, Personalization from Henry James, Edith and Henry James were really good friends. There is one from Teddy Roosevelt. He says to Edith Wharton from an American American, right. Theodore Roosevelt, <laughs> February 6, 1915. Because, you know, she's living in France right. at the time. And so this American American thing, him and his patriotism. But she did so much important war work there in France. I had no idea mm-hmm. the extent of her work and the aid that she was able to put together for people. One of the really cool books was called The Ballad of Reading, Jail C-33, which is a book from Oscar Wilde that he published while he was in prison. That surprised me. I mean, I don't know that much about Oscar Wilde, really, yeah. and that he published while he was in prison. Yeah. So many amazing books. We talked a little bit about that Edith didn't really do a ton of underlining or notes on the margins, but she did do some. She put little check marks here and some underlinings. And in one of the books, one of the writing books, she did have some marginalia, like highlighting that something was about alliteration. Yeah, it was one about writing poetry. And then at the back of that, she started to practice what she was learning in the book with music notes, because Mm -hmm. it was all about trying to like keep the beat for a poem. It was very cool. Yeah. And it was from her younger days. Mm -hmm. I think some people judge Edith Wharton a little bit because she was so wealthy, but she worked hard Mm -hmm. to become a writer. She really worked on her craft for a long time. Yeah, she was pretty self taught in a lot of ways. Right? Yeah, absolutely. She never had formal education. Yeah, that was just a great tour. We so appreciate Anne and Inke's time with us. They were so generous and Mm -hmm. just so enthusiastic and friendly. And one of the things we did reach out to them after we had been there and said, you know, what can people do to support the Mount? And they said, really, you can become a member, you can go visit the Mount, you can participate in their programs, both on site and virtually. And of course, you can donate if you would like as well. And all of that is available on their website. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah. It was a great day. We drove up there. We stopped at two libraries that were both beautiful. We went to a bookstore in Lenox called The Bookstore that was featured in the documentary that I talked about, I think a couple episodes ago called Hello Bookstore, which is available to stream now. I'll put a link in the show notes. It was fun to be there. Unfortunately, the owner was on vacation, so I didn't get to see the the man from the movie, but the yeah. store was beautiful. <laughs> 
It was a great day. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, we highly yeah. recommend you go if you get a chance. And they do have a lot of programs there. So if you want to wrap your visit around one of their programs, that's a fun way to do it. And there are places to stay in town as well. Mm-hmm. So, And also Herman Melville's house is down the road, Arrowhead. And there are other literary things to do in the Berkshires. Yes, we will go back. Absolutely. <laughs> I took a quick weekend trip to Portland, Maine, and I stopped into two bookstores there. One is called Elements Books Coffee Beer in Biddeford, Maine. Biddeford is kind of having a bit of a resurgence. They're renovating a lot of old mills, cotton mills mm. and things like that. So there's a lot of artists and breweries. And this bookstore was really cool. When I walked in, there was a sign on a bookcase right in the front that said, after 10 years of grad school, the only thing I get is this bookshelf or something like that, which I didn't really get. So I finally just asked someone that looked like they were in charge. And it happened to be the owner who was behind the coffee machine. And he said, yeah, it's self deprecating. Like I was in grad school working on a PhD in philosophy for 10 years, and I never finished. And instead, I opened a bookstore and I love it. <laughs> so seemed like a good choice to me. It had used books. And then the new books were all remainders. So everything was lower priced than the flap price. So it was cool. The coffee was good. And then down the road in Portland, Maine, I went to Longfellow Books, which I've been to before. It's a great bookstore right in the heart of downtown Portland, also with used books and then new books. I bought a stack of books. Nice. (laughs) Awesome. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. What about you? Did you do any other biblio adventuring? Well, you know what? I am here in Illinois. And when I got off the plane at O'Hare, I was in a different terminal from when I landed in June. And lo and behold, I ran into the different Barbara's bookstore than the one I posted about back in June. There are actually three Barbara's bookshops in O'Hare. I mean, I think O'Hare is bigger than Guilford, the town where we live. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it is so massive. So, um, that was fun to see. And Barbara's is, uh, you know, they have physical locations out in Chicago and in some suburbs, they used to have one in Oak Park, Illinois, that I really liked, but now, you know, they have these three locations. So they're really good bookstores and they also sell Chicago touristy type things as well. So then, yeah, when I got home to my mom's waiting for me was a gift She had gone up to Honest Dog Books in Bayfield, Wisconsin, which is way north on the tip on Lake Superior up there. She'd been in Wisconsin with some friends and I texted and said, hey, are you guys up for a bookstore? Because they were only like an hour away. So she went, she bought me a tote bag, which is lovely. Nice. She had also sent me a postcard. So I got the postcard and I thought that was going to be my gift. But then the tote bag was waiting for me. My mom had also gotten me a tote bag a few years ago from Parnassus Books in Nashville. So now we joke that my mom is hitting all of my bucket list bookstores. So (laughs) it's kind of fun. That is fun. How nice. So upcoming jaunts. I am excited. I just found out that that book that I loved, it was one of my top books from 2020. From Scratch by Tembe Locke. It was the book that our author Matthew Goodman had told me about 
that's a memoir about a woman whose husband sadly was dying from cancer and he was from Italy. So is a food memoir and also a grieving memoir. And it just came out on Netflix as an eight episode serialized version. And Tembe Locke was the author, but her sister is Attica Locke, who's also a very well-known author and writer of films and television. So they partnered together. So I'm really excited to get started on that. Again, that's called From Scratch. There's eight episodes on streaming on Netflix. I talked about it on episode 120 and 97, if you want to go back and listen. So do you have any upcoming jaunts? Well, my upcoming jaunt, um, tomorrow I'm going to Loyola University, Chicago, the Lakeshore campus, to do some research in the library. I'm super excited about that. I haven't really been back in the library since I graduated in 1992, and they have changed a lot, but they have a whole new learning commons that they call it, which is this glass building that you can see through and see Lake Michigan right there. It's right on Lake Michigan. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that. Take some pictures. I shall. I can't wait to see it. Lake Michigan's oh, so beautiful. <laughs> So what about upcoming reads? What's on your nightstand? Well, Murder on the Red River by Marcy Rendon, our upcoming read-along. Reminder that um, we have a Zoom discussion of that on December 4th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Please send an email at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to join us. Marcy's been getting a lot of great press for Sinister Graves, which is the third book in the series, which just came out in October. So I'm really looking forward to starting this series. Yeah, same here. I want to start it early because I have a feeling I'm going to really enjoy it. I know Sue, one of our listeners, has read all three of them already and love them. Yes, that's high yeah. praise. So I'm looking forward to that. We're putting links to some of those events that we're seeing with Marcy in the Goodreads thread that we have for the book too. And if you find anything about her articles or events, feel free to drop those links in there as well. Yeah, I know Linda, our Goodreads librarian just posted something in Goodreads last night. Thank you, Linda, for doing that. So yes, please share, share, share. And then I also have a book that I got when I was at Longfellow Books called The Seas by Samantha Hunt. I'm going to show Chris the cover. I could not yeah. pass this book up. It's beautiful. I love that book. And I you know what, when we were up in Concord at the Concord Bookshop, remember that when mm -hmm. we were up there? Mm -hmm. I saw it then, I think. Oh. I was a fool for not getting I'll it. I'll share it. I'm a good sharer. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you. you know, what sold me on this is was the shelf talker. It was this huge table when you walked into the bookstore that had all these books with these beautiful blue shelf talkers sticking out of them. And I read it and was like, yes, please. Nice. I will hope to have that read by the next episode. Nice. What about you? Well, this is not a book I'm going to be reading right now, but I'm, I'm here at the library that's just across a field from my mom's house. And I had to browse the new shelves. And they have a book called Guarded by Dragons, Encounters with Rare Books and Rare People. It's by Rick Gikowski. And he is a rare book dealer and a former academic. He's also written novels. And he, in 2005, he was a judge for the Man Booker Prize and then chair of the judges for the Man Booker International Prize in 2011. He's from the UK and New Zealand. He splits cool. his time between the two. So this will be something I'm putting on my list for between semesters. <laughs> 
That list is growing. I was going to say that list is so out of control. And then you know what? During the between time, I'll probably read completely different things. Of course. But I remember that that feeling of, oh, fiction again. It's such a gift. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So coming up is our conversation with Blair Braverman with her debut novel, Small Game. She's also written two works of nonfiction, which we talk about in our intro. We had such a good time talking with Blair as her sled dogs were in the background. (laughs) So it was a really fun conversation. (laughs) She was really excited to talk with us because we were the first people who read the novel who she really got to talk about it with. So it was a new experience for her too. And she was asking us some questions about the different characters as well. And and that might have been off mic when we finished the, the more formal interview, but it was so much fun to talk with her. Such an awesome person. And this book, if you like adventure and wilderness and some social satire commentary that's not snarky, it's not mean-spirited at all. And I know I think sometimes I equate satire with that kind of vibe. It's not that at all. This is a fantastic story of survival and getting to know yourself better. Yeah. And Blair was on the show Naked and Afraid. And she wrote a great article for Outside Magazine about that. So I will link to that in the show notes. It's a great article to read either before or after you read her novel. So enjoy our conversation with Blair. We're so excited to be talking today with Blair Braverman. If we were dogs, our tails would be wagging and we'd be doing some enthusiastic play bows. Blair is a writer, dog sledder, and adventurer. Her first book was a memoir, Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, Chasing Fear and Finding Home in the Great White North. She's also a contributing editor to Outside Magazine, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Vogue, and This American Life. Co-written with her husband, Quince Mountain, Blair's second book, Dogs on the Trail, A Year in the Life, teaches readers about dog sledding, and the work that goes into each season. It's informative and gorgeous, filled with color photos of their dog team at work and play. Blair's debut novel, Small Game, was just published. It's about a reality survival show gone wrong. Welcome, Blair. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Blair, I thought we would start by doing something a little different, which is I'm going to read just a little part of the novel The parts that really spoke to me were when you were writing about survival skills and how these people were going to make it out in the woods as a team. So this little piece is about Mara, who's our main protagonist. She was raised living off the grid. So she came to the reality show with a lot of skills under her belt. So this is Mara. She wished Kyle would leave so she could sit by the fire without him. But clearly he wasn't going to. So instead, she went to the lakeside and pulled up reeds, beating them with a stick until the stems frayed into fibers. The ends curled like hands, little fists, and then relaxed into strands once more. Mara wound them tightly, twisting between her fingers and thumbs to form a single pliable strand. That was one lesson she knew well for survival. When in doubt, make string. I just love that. And (laughs) 
And so talk to us about your own survival skills. You were on the show Naked and Afraid, right? I was, I was, yeah. So talk to us about that and how that informed the writing of this novel. I would say my survival skills vary in a lot of ways because I'm a professional long distance dog sledder. So I will often go out and cross distances of 100 to 1000 miles at a time by myself with my sled dogs in temperatures down to like 50 below. So that's not technically survival, but you're always sort of on this knife's edge where it could become survival at any moment. And that's actually where my expertise lies is cold weather, I guess you could call it survival, but camping in extreme cold, traveling by dog team in extreme cold. And I love it. It's something I've been doing since I was 18 years old. I'm now 34, so almost half my life. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to be on a reality show that is primitive survival. So you have almost no supplies. And that was completely new for me because when I go out, I carry a tremendous amount of gear. A lot of it is gear that I've made myself, but I'm carrying a lot of clothing. I'm carrying a lot of dog food. I always have an ax. I always have my sled. I always have everything with me and sometimes that equipment breaks or falls into a river or something and i have to make do without it but it was a very different mindset to go into an experience where i knew i wouldn't have supplies and primitive survival which is sort of survival using no modern materials basically is very much its own skill set there are incredible experts in it but it was totally new for me so it was something i really had to study up on and learn how to make fire without all my fire making tools that I normally carry. I normally have like three backups in my dog sled, learning how to build traps. All of this stuff was really new for me, even though the wilderness itself was very familiar. And one of the things I got very good at was making string. So <laughs> of course, um, that was something that, that Mara as a survival expert would be quite good at as well. And string proves really important. So that's not a bad thing to be good at, right? <laughs> it does. It does. Absolutely. I mean, I really like fiber arts. Like I like sewing and knitting and crocheting and that sort of thing. So when I was going out on the show, I was like, if I could just get some sort of material, then I can work with it. I wanted to find like a baobab tree because I knew you could pound the bark into fabric. And I, I was researching all these things. And then I ended up not near that vegetation. I was in South Africa, but there was a baobab tree five miles away and I couldn't get there. I was barefoot. So I just went without. But in my mind, I had all these plans for what I would do if I could just get materials. So it was fun in this fictional show to allow the characters to live out the things I had wanted to make, but didn't get a chance to. <laughs> That's very cool. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So I love the setup of the novel from the very beginning. I've read a lot of thrillers and adventure type books, and there's always these archetypal characters that while you're reading, you could kind of check them off like, yes, yes, yes. This was so different, though, because here there are these reality contestants who are chosen because they're archetypal in a way. So like it was right up front, and I thought that was a really different spin. So... There are five contestants initially, three men and two women, Ashley and Mara, and they're both so different from one another in some ways. But then we were kind of wondering about that. I think Emily had the question wondering, like, which one do you identify with more? And then I was wondering if they're kind of both different sides of a person. Oh, those are great questions. So for listeners who haven't read it. This I don't believe is a spoiler because you'll learn it in the first page. 
we have Ashley, who is on the reality show to be famous, and she didn't really care what kind of reality show she was on. This is a springboard for her. We have Mara, who is a survival instructor who did not intend to be on a reality show at all, but had the opportunity come to her and decided to go for it because she sees it as a pathway to escaping her current situation that she wants to get out of in life. And then we have some men. We have James, who I'm not like at all. And then we have Kyle, who is a very earnest and annoying Eagle Scout. <laughs> and we have Bullfrog, who is just sort of a backwoods dude. I know 10 bullfrogs. They're my neighbors <laughs> and my friends. <laughs> I think I have things in common with all four of those main characters. I can see parts of myself in all of them. I think I'm a millennial. I think Ashley is very millennial in her mentality. I haven't had the same goals as her. I have not sought out fame in the way that she does, but I certainly have the same idea that I am trying to grow out of, which is like, if you can get your career right, then everything in life will be okay. There's Mara, who has a lot of outdoors experience, and in that way, I relate to her, but she's also very cynical in a way I'm not. You have Kyle, who just believes in his heart that if you can do things correctly, if you just follow the rules on everything, then you can be guaranteed a good outcome. And you have Bullfrog, who's just lived off the land long enough that he has no time for anyone's shit and just sort of is very practical about everything. I relate to all four of those in different parts of myself. If anything, I'm probably most like Kyle. There's elements of all the characters that come from little seeds in me, I would say. Nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's hard with, with your background, knowing your background, and then reading a book like this, it was hard not to think questions like that about, hmm. I wonder which one, you know, Blair identifies with. So thanks for answering that question. I know I have to say, I thought, oh, it certainly couldn't be Ashley. And then when I was reading your Outside Magazine article about being on Naked and Afraid and you got your nails done before you went, hot pink, <laughs> I was like, oh, she's got a little Ashley in her. I see it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was very unusual for me, actually. I, never, I think that was the first or second manicure of my life. <laughs> I don't relate to Ashley in that, I don't want too many people looking at me, actually, even though my life is somewhat public in certain ways. Mm. We've been approached multiple times about having reality shows follow our life with the sled dogs and uh, have always said no. I like keeping the storytelling on my terms as opposed to having someone following me. That feels incredibly vulnerable and, and stressful to me. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I think reality television is so fascinating, especially these shows where people are out in the wilderness because... There are cameras there. There are people who are there behind the cameras filming folks. So that's definitely part of this novel that you make very clear. It also becomes problematic in ways that we won't spoil here. But I wanted to talk about the title because I think that it's such a great title. To remind listeners, it's called Small Game. And I kept thinking about it as I was reading it because it's, you know, this is a game kind of that they're on. It's a, not a game show as you think of as like Price is Right, which I'm aging myself with that <laughs> one a little bit. But it's a reality show. It's somewhat of a game. And then small game, of course, is little critters. And the mm -hmm. people kind of felt like small game in a certain way. So can you talk about the title? Was that the working title the whole time? Oh, th thank you for asking that question. I love the title now, but it, it was hard to get to it. And actually, it's been very funny when it when it first popped up on Amazon, you know, before a book comes out, it starts to appear on Amazon, like these little pages start to appear on the internet about it. It was misattributed to a uh, 
some guy, I forget his name, who writes hunting books. He was linked as the author, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious and I wanted to keep it that way. <laughs> but, Your publisher uh, didn't go for that. <laughs> my working title was Civilization, which is the mm. name of the, the television show. And I was very attached to it. I thought it had, a, I was like, it's, it's bold. It's like if I were a Jonathan, I would have a book called Civilization. And <laughs> and it also is a verb. It's like the civilization of Mara because she's actually learning how to be with people over the course of this book. And my publisher was like, that is not a good title, Blair. Like that, <laughs> we understand your arguments, but like nobody likes it like you do. And they were absolutely correct. They are very tactful and very smart about these things. So I started thinking, I was like, okay, well, what I have to do then is come up with a title that I like better than civilization. Then I'll become attached to that new title. And we were going through me and my editor and my husband, we were going through every like possible survival term word, combining different survival words. But to me, they all sounded like jokes because that's how I came up with the name of the survival school in the book was by combining survival words to try to make like a caricature. <laughs> and I was like, I can't name the book that. In that case, the school is called Primal Instinct. Right. And because <laughs> there's, there's a genre to these survival schools, they're all named things like Primal Instinct. And finally, we're like coming up on the deadline. This is like last December. And I'm on the phone. I call my incredible agent, Andrea Blatt, and my husband and I are all sitting there on speakerphone. And I, in my mind, this was like a four hour conversation. We were just like, we're just going to think of a title. And just the three of us are like slap happy, like saying every word we can think of for four hours and like none of them are good and none of them are good. And finally, like toward the end, someone's like, I think it was my husband, but maybe it was my agent it was like listing hunting terms. And he was like small game or she was, I forget who came up with it. And then there was this pause and the other two people were like, wait, wait, say that again. Wait, actually, we don't hate that one. And then we realized we all loved it and the publisher loved it too. Oh, so uh, so we were really happy when we came up with it. It's a great so, play I'm on glad words. You like it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And the company that Mara works for was, I guess, it's not exactly satire, is it? Because it's cultural commentary, I guess, in some ways, or bringing readers in who are familiar with this genre of outdoor adventure. It's all familiar to them in a lot of ways. But, you know, you take the reader behind the scenes a little bit with, like, the bracelets and what the actual sources of those bracelets that people who survive the night get. And then you also discuss Chris McCandless, which I thought was really interesting to see how you brought his story in. And I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with his story uh, that was made popular by John Krakauer, who it was originally an article in Outside, and then it was turned into a full-length book called Into the Wild. We know, like, Chris McCandless is, was made almost into this patron saint for a lot of people, very much idolized by young people who want to get out into the wilderness and live off the grid. But there's this whole other argument about how he died and what he represents. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, in terms of Kyle, he's one of Kyle's heroes. Yeah, I, um, I've been a wilderness guide quite a bit. I'm not a wilderness guide at this moment, but I've had multiple wilderness guide jobs. And one of the main topics of conversation at every one of these jobs was Chris McCandless and everyone had their own projections that they were putting onto this man who you know, set out on something incredible and, and then had an incredibly tragic death. So I've been in spaces where he's idolized and I've also been in 
spaces where he's ridiculed. And in both cases, it's projection onto him. It's based on what the people talking are trying to figure out and the stories they're trying to tell about themselves. It, it actually has nothing to do with the real guy at all. It's all what we, what we see of ourselves when we look at him. So because that's been such a theme in the wilderness guide spaces I've been in, it felt like a natural theme in the book. And when I first put him in, I was going to have him be a placeholder and I was going to insert some fictional person instead. And I never ended up doing that. And I do have mixed feelings a little bit because whenever you're talking about real things, I'm like, you know, his family could read this book and I'm not making fun of him. I am commenting on how people comment about him and I respect him very much. I don't know. I have a little bit of mixed feelings about that. It's a coin toss on whether if I were in the editing stage now, I would switch him out with someone fictional, mm. even though it becomes clear over the course of the book that everyone is talking about their idea of him and not the reality of him. You know, I appreciate that you put the real man in there because I think it can lead to a lot of really fantastic discussions, I think, about mm. this novel itself and what happens in the novel and then also wilderness in general. When I said satire, I just meant it more in terms of social commentary. Oh, no, it's satire is a valid word for this. Uh, okay. I, I didn't intend it to be satire. I wrote it in first person originally, and I switched it to third person at some point. And I remember saying to my husband as I was like retyping it in third person and rewriting it, like now it feels like satire in a way that I never picked up on mm. in first person. So it's something I've noticed too. It, it'll be interesting whether readers interpret it that way. Yeah, because there's this vibe of armchair survivalists from the, yeah, from the characters talking about the people who are going to be watching the show. And then, you know, people who are talking about McCandless and then even the clients that Mara has to deal with, just that kind of philosophy of, well, I would never do that. And that would never happen to me, so, which I just thought was really an enjoyable thing. I have limited outdoors experience. I've spent like a week in the woods here and there, but nothing to write home about. Uh, but I feel like a I'm week is a week. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I would write home about a week. <laughs> well, that's a great segue. Let's talk about writing because you, okay. you have an MFA in nonfiction writing, right? Yeah. So what was it like for you now to move over into the realm of fiction? Well, I love nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo I love nonfiction. And I, I didn't set out to write fiction. I actually I've had this idea for this book for a couple of years, because I'm fascinated by the line between play survival and real survival. I was like, there just has to be I'm going to try to say this without any spoilers. But I was like, what would happen? in a survival show that became a real survival situation. Like how would people recognize that they had crossed that line? Would people be in denial? Would the real thing be the same as the game they were playing at the beginning or would it be completely different? I was fascinated by this idea to the point where I wanted someone else to write it. Like I tried to give the story away. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I just wanted to read it. I was like, what would happen? I'm so curious, like somebody tell this story so that I can learn from it. And it became clear no one else cared quite as much as I did, and no one was going to write it for me. And so it wasn't that I set out to write fiction. It was that I was obsessed with this story and was like, well, if no one's going to write it, I guess I have to write it myself. <laughs> and then I really enjoyed it. So now I would love to write more fiction. I thought it was incredibly fun to write, and it, it was different. In some ways, it's very similar to nonfiction because I write narrative nonfiction. So I'm still working in scene and dialogue and that sort of thing. And in some ways, it was a lot freer, which was fun. So who knows right. what I'll <laughs> try next. So, you know, you talked about writing it in the first person. 
and then mm-hmm. revising it. Like how long did the whole process take you from when you first said, okay, I guess I'm the one who's writing this? It was pretty fast. It was January, 2021. And I was recovering from COVID. It took me a while to recover from COVID when I got it at that point. I was not myself probably for about two months. And so I couldn't be dog sledding like I wanted to be. And so I came up with a world in which people also felt trapped in the way I did. (laughs) The first draft took me probably three months, which felt incredibly fast for me. Some writers I'm sure are faster than that, but for me, that was rocket speed. And then I sent it to my agent shortly after that. And I did revisions for another three or four months and uh, sent it to the publisher at the end of summer. Wow. Very cool. And how do you write? Do you start longhand or is it all on your computer from the get-go? I write on my computer, but I am a fiend for self-punishment. Everything I write, every draft, I print out and I retype from scratch Mm -hmm. to make any edits. The entire draft, I retype from scratch rather than changing words in the Scrivener document or whatever. And it takes forever. And I also introduced typos in that way, but I feel like it makes the writing better. So I probably retyped it like the entire book length thing 20 times. Wow. That's such an interesting process in the mind. I can really see. So when you're typing it, you're also doing some editing as you type or you have handwritten the edits. I pretty much never write by hand. Everything's always typewritten. I find there's an inertia. If you're editing on a screen, if you're going in and saying, oh, this sentence could be better and you're moving words around, there's an inertia for most of the words to stay the same as they are. Hmm. And if you're retyping, then every single time, most of the sentences I'm shifting slightly. Like I'm just moving this word over here. I'm just, I'm like seeing it. And then it like, you know, goes through my brain and gets typed slightly differently into the computer. And I like that. I like that there's never inertia. It's sort of evolving as a blob altogether, not just an individual sentence here and there. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, that's a very cool process. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about it that way. It's, it's very inconvenient. So if you don't <laughs> do it, don't start it. <laughs> well, you must really be able to type. I mean, I'm not very good at typing. And so to me, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> it is like, I think there were times when I spent like six days in a row retyping. I'd be like, I changed six sentences. Like that was such an incredible incredible waste of time. Hmm. But it, it is what it is. There's no waste of time. It, the process is what it is. And, you know, it takes what it takes to get from the beginning to the end. Right. Yeah. But, uh, if you look too closely at any one stage in the process, that particular stage can seem like a waste if you're being a little self-critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see yeah. That. But wow, what familiarity, though, with the story and with the sentences and paragraphs. I mean, that's a real intimacy with your writing. It is. And I, I mean, I do move things around. I spread it all on the floor and move things around and do that cutting up paragraphs, whole thing. Um, You'd think I'd like have it memorized after (laughs) typing it that many times, but I don't. It it just goes through my brain. It doesn't stay there. Wow. Now, is that the same process when you're writing nonfiction? Yeah, it's exactly the same. Interesting. Wow. That's really neat. I'm still thinking about that. It's great. (laughs) And your dogs on the trail. You talk about how one of the things your dogs taught you was that there's much less of a difference between animals and humans than you had initially thought. Mm -hmm. And then in small game, there are some hard things that happen with animals in Mm -hmm. that book. And so, you know, I was thinking about the animals as characters. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Just your being somebody who is an adventurer a dog sledder, 
I would think an environmentalist animal lover, I know I'm putting things on you. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about animals in your work. Yeah, that's a that's very broad. Um, animals in my work. <laughs> so I, I am a dog sledder. I spend all my day with the dogs. I when I'm not retyping things, um, I I learn from them all the time. I'm consistently shocked by the ways that humans and animals are similar, or at least humans and sled dogs are similar. I can't speak for all animals. Animals are different from each other. But I find that we're often not similar in the ways that we like to think that we're similar. There are surprising ways we're similar, but there are also many ways that we humans buffer ourselves that dogs don't. And uh, there are some animals who die in the book. They eat them. Uh, there are bad things that happen to people in the book as well. I work with these dogs all the time. They are my babies. All I want is for them to be happy every day of their lives. And I spend a lot of time processing meat for them by hand, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of meat. And that meat also came from animals who I didn't know as well. And working with animals directly, being in the Northwoods, being in survival situations, these are all things that remove the buffers that we have built around ourselves in civilization, so to speak. Mm. Um, I was vegan for seven years. I find that being vegan and processing a lot of meat for my dogs by hand, uh, which I do on a regular basis, have more in common than simply living your life and not thinking about where your food comes from. Mm. I remember my husband used to work at an artist residency and he told a story once about, and he is a hunter, he told a story once about how he, there was a fresh roadkill deer and he immediately picked it up and he prepared it so people could eat it. And the only people who would eat it were the people who were vegetarian or vegan or almost entirely people who wouldn't eat like factory farmed meat. Mm. And the people who would just eat a burger without thinking about it were repulsed by the idea of eating the roadkill deer. So it's complicated. It's being close with animals also means <laughs> encountering carnivorousness up close. These dogs are carnivores. In order for them to live, other animals' bodies are being eaten. Humans don't have to be carnivores in the same way, but a lot of us are. And survival just brings you really close to all of that. Uh, it, it takes those buffers away. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. The whole thing about civilization, though, like there's one quote, and I believe it's Mara who says, it's not survival if you have a choice. Mm -hmm. I just love that transformation that happens within this book. And then thinking about survival lifestyles, for lack of a better word, and, and just that there are lines between what we choose to do and what we must do. And I think when you're living in a situation like you are, where you have to process all that meat, it's, it's such an immediacy that you just can't deny. Wow. <sighs> There's so much so I want to ask, but you know, we don't want to give spoilers. So no. yeah. <laughs> this is a, it, it's kind of a hard book to talk about without spoilers. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it is. It really is. It is. At some point, we can, you could just tell people turn turn it off and only continue listening after you've read the book. <laughs> okay, well, mm -hmm. that's great because listeners do that. I'm not sure how much of a spoiler this is, but talking about gender roles is something I was interested mm -hmm. in because you know. Bullfrog is one of the male characters, and he's going off every day looking for help. Somebody praises him for that, and Mara says, I'd like to be out there looking for help too, anything to get away, but here I am dealing with this. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's back at camp dealing with something, 
Ashley is boiling water because they have to boil the water to have drinking water. And, you know, I just thought about that in terms of his character and his situation with his daughter and then just kind of gender stereotypes in general. And I was wondering what your thoughts were about gender as you were writing these characters. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I was thinking about it explicitly. It's something that I think about a lot in my life. And I think Ashley is a character who the others see as kind of less serious and contributing less. She has less experience. She is more traditionally feminine. But the thing she's doing every day, she is the one who is making sure they all have water. She is doing the most basic task that results in no glory for her, but is keeping all of them fundamentally alive in a way that the more exotic tasks like hunting and looking for help are more removed from that immediacy, uh, which is also how we treat a lot of women's work. Yeah, absolutely. And she also, well, this is a little bit of a spoiler too. I don't think it'll ruin anything, but they all get to choose certain items to have with them. And a lot of people, including Mara, choose blades. Like they want like an exciting blade-like item and she chooses a pot, which is not very glamorous and they wouldn't have chosen, uh, but ends up being more practical yeah. than the cool knives that the other characters want to have. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And it is the one tool that keeps them really alive as a group mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Totally. Yeah. So may we ask what you're working on next or currently? You can. Yeah. I'm working on, well, I, you may not get a straight answer, but <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome to ask. I'm working on a nonfiction project and a fiction project mm -hmm. that are both book length. And I, I'm not sure which one will pull ahead and become the next book. So it's a little bit of a nonfiction versus fiction race. Uh, that's all That's all I'm going to say for right now, because I don't like to talk about things while they're in progress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it'll be interesting. <laughs> we'll oh, see which genre pulls ahead. We look forward to seeing the outcome. You have a oh, lot of typing so to much. do. <laughs> I, thank you. Yeah, that, that is the truth. So in terms of racing, since you just used that word and, you know, you mm -hmm. have your sled dog team, will you be participating in a lot of races this coming season? Absolutely. I hope so. I, if all goes well, we are just ramping up distances for the dogs for running. They start with a couple miles at the end of summer as soon as the temperature dips below 50 degrees. And then we add miles as they're gaining endurance. And uh, by the end of winter, they can go 100 miles in 24 hours, which is incredible. And they are not more tired after that than they are after like a jaunt at this time of year. That's amazing. That so amazing, we, yeah. we would love to do our favorite. Uh, our favorite is probably mid-distance, the 100 to 400 mile race range. And my husband and I train together. We run the team together. And we trade off who is racing and who is the support team. So we haven't decided who's going to run what race, but uh, we have a couple we'd really love to do that are in that two to 300 mile range this winter. Very cool. What's the best way for listeners to keep up with you and your team if they want to follow oh, your good races? Question. The best way to follow us is on Twitter, Blair Braverman. I just post a lot of sled dog content constantly <laughs> on Twitter. So if you want to um, see some cute dogs in beautiful places and follow along, you're welcome to do that. We also have a Patreon for Braver Mountain Mushing. And that is where you can chip in a couple dollars, like $2 a month for the team. And it goes toward dog food, kibble, like not meat that I'm chopping up myself, but some of the dog food that we have to buy. And then you get stories and you get some more in-depth behind the scene 
stuff that you can follow along with also. Oh, very oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be exciting to, to watch that. And we, you know, wish your team great health and, you know, health, I guess, is the main thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, health, fun, good weather. Right? Yeah, good yeah. weather, right? <laughs> they, <laughs> this is their favorite time of year. Oh. They're getting very, very excited now that the days are getting a little cooler. Oh, that's, that's great. so great. So are yeah. we. We we oh. we like the cool weather too. We can totally relate. Yeah. We do not <laughs> like hot weather hot weather. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a retired sled dog, so it's a perfect fit. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Blair, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this wonderful novel that we both really enjoyed. And we wish you and the team great success this season. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here talking with both of you. And, and thank you to your listeners as well. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. Wow. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.